Tom, that is serious business. It's serious business except the office of elder or deacon, and we thank the men and women who stepped forward to do that in the coming years. The name of the sermon is God's Remedy for Leather Pants. The leather pants will hopefully become clear later on. I'm sure it's somewhat obscure right now to you, not to, hopefully not to me. But the basic function of this, of this sermon really, or I guess the root of this sermon really lies very, it's very close to the kinds of things that Chuck Nieder talked about last week. If you were here, you know that he talked about the importance of living the Christian life with passion. And as, he, as I sat listening to his words, I thought that so often I live a passionless Christian life. So often I, I go through the motions. And that the reality is that though I am a Christian and that's real, so it, it, it's true that it just becomes rote to me so much of the time. I read an article in Discipleship Journal written by Larry Libby recently. Larry Libby is the president of the Navigators, a, a parachurch organization headquartered in Colorado Springs. And as I read the article and I read the, this quote I'm about to read, I was really struck by how much I could identify with it. This is what Libby wrote. My younger brother is really at a turning point in his life. As a matter of fact, the decisions he makes in the next couple of weeks will determine whether his marriage blows apart or starts on the road to healing. It's like his whole life is hanging in the balance. My sister called and pleaded with me to pray for him. This ought to really get me motivated, but you know what? It hasn't changed a thing. I still can't work up the energy to pray. I ought to care, but it seems like I can't or won't. What's wrong with me? Those last several words are haunting, at least to me. I ought to care, but it seems like I can't or won't. What's wrong with me? I can't tell you the number of times that somebody will come to me and they'll share some concern in their life. It might be illness, it might be struggles in a relationship, it might be a job search, it can be a lot of different things. And they say, will you pray for me? And I say, absolutely. And then don't. Or maybe do it once, maybe do it twice, but pretty soon the cares of my own life my own agenda, my own priorities, squeeze out their concerns, and I forget about it. And I see them a week later or a few days later, and I guiltily think about the promise I made, and I might then pray for them. But again, it'll be once or twice, and usually, usually, that's it. I ought to care, but it seems like I can't or won't. What's wrong with me? Or... I get regularly emails from Doug Herman. Doug Herman is one of the elders at Green Tree, and he has for years, I'd say probably seven, eight years, he has diligently, faithfully set out, sent out prayer requests via email to members of, of the church, to elders, pastors, staff members, deacons, etc. And there's a long list filled with the concerns of all of you and of your friends and family. And I get that list, and sometimes when I get it, I sit down very diligently and very faithfully pray through them. But other times I get the list, and it's like I'm reciting my ABCs. I go through the list mechanically, by rote, without any real commitment to it or focus on it. It's something I do as an act of obedience, but it's not really coming from the heart at all. And there are other times I have to confess when I get the list. I get it at work. I get probably 50 to 75 emails a day at work, and Doug's name pops up. And it says prayer requests, and I look at it, and I'm busy, and I don't open it. 
and the emails keep pouring in and, and I have classes to teach and papers to grade and lessons to plan and people come to see me. I have meetings to go to and his email sits there unopened for the rest of the day and maybe the next day and the next day and sometimes the next day. And then finally, I rather guiltily look at that email unopened after five or six days and think, well, I don't know. And I move the cursor up and delete it. And don't pray for those things. Even though as an elder of the church, I took these same vows. And I said I'd care about your concerns, and I sometimes don't. I ought to care, but it seems like I can't or won't. What's wrong with me? You see, I think that this kind of spiritual lethargy that I, that, that I see in my own life is something that's epidemic. I don't think I'm alone. Because it's so easy for us, I think, to get grounded in that spiritual apathy, and it's very difficult for us sometimes to really carry out those things which we know we ought to carry out if we're Christians. So what I'd like to do today is talk about that, that issue. And I'd like to spend a moment in prayer. And as I do, I'm going to pray for the sermon, pray for the subject. But I'd also like to pray for the folks in Tijuana. And I'd also like to pray for the church plan. So I'll do those things in the prayer, and then we'll get into the sermon. Let's pray. Father, I do want to pray that you will help us to see who we are and see who you are and, or, and to recognize the enormity of the blessing you have been in our lives. You've given us the great gift of life, and I pray that we would not ignore it, but rather understand the implications of it and seek to live a life pleasing to you. I do want to pray for the folks in Tijuana as they complete their time there, that you would bring them back safely. But more than that, that the time they spent there will resonate in their lives for months and years to come, that they would understand the blessing of service and that, and that the memories would not fade. I also want to pray for those to whom they ministered, those for whom they built a home, that this wouldn't just be four walls and a roof, but rather would be a place that they see as a gift from God and that the, the presence of our Green Tree folks in Tijuana would make a, a long-term eternal difference in the lives of the folks that they went to build a home for. And I also would like to pray for the church planning team and for that whole process, that we as a congregation can get behind that, that this wouldn't be the work of a small group, but rather we would all understand our responsibility to participate in some way, whether it's prayer, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's going to that church, that we all in some way can participate, and I pray we will. So, Lord, we ask each of these things in your holy name, and thank you that you are a loving God. In Christ's name, amen. I think, frankly that the root of spiritual apathy, at least for me, is that I don't take my sin very seriously. You see, I am a person who is a pretty nice guy. I mean, I know that I'm a sinner. That's what we hear every week at church, and that's what I read every day I pick up the Bible. I know I'm a sinner. But I'm not that bad, am I? I mean, I pick up the newspaper, I read about murder, and I read about terrorism and I read about rape and I read about sexual predators and I think, well, gosh, I'm glad I'm not like them. And I look around this church and I know many of you and I think there's a lot of really nice people here. And I see the way this church does exhibit the love of God in lots of ways. I mean, a month ago, there were all kinds of paper mittens all over the walls of that, along that wall, along that wall, expressing the, the Christmas wishes of impoverished kids in Kirkwood and throughout the metropolitan area. And the people in this body took those mittens home and they bought those presents and they wrapped them and they brought them back to church and they gave those kids a Christmas. Those things flew out the door. 
People care. People are nice. We send out mission teams all over the world. I mean, in the last year, we sent teams to Russia and South Africa and Kenya and Northern Ireland. We sent them to Honduras and Mexico. I mean, there's a lot of people in this church who spend a lot of time seeking to be the agents that God has called us to be. There are people who in their private lives do all kinds of things that most of us never know about, ministering to others in the community. I mean, that's just, that's just a way of life for many people. We, we as a congregation, as a church body, celebrate uh, every June 2028 where we go out in the community. Hundreds of us go out in the community and we do all kinds of service projects. Again, we're nice people. We do a lot of really good things. So when Tom Rick stands in front of us and says that we're all sinners, we all, we, at least, I, I shouldn't say we, I will nod my head and go, yeah, that's true, I agree with that. But often that message doesn't seem to penetrate very deeply into my heart. I'm a nice guy. I'm not that bad. Malcolm Muggeridge is an English, was an English philosopher, theologian. He wrote about this subject, this very subject. And I think what he said is, is profound. I think it really strikes right to the core of who I am. I want to read the quote. It's going to appear on the screen in just a moment. It's fairly long, so bear with me. But I think it really does speak to our human condition, at least to mine. This is what Muggeridge says. Christianity does not say that in spite of appearances, we are all murderers or burglars or crooks or sexual perverts at heart. It does not say that we are totally depraved in the sense that we are incapable of feeling or responding to any good impulses, whatever. The truth is much deeper and more subtle than that. It's precisely when you consider the best in man that you see there is in each of us a hard core of pride or self-centeredness, which corrupts our best achievements and blights our best experiences. It comes out in all sorts of ways, in the jealousy which spoils our friendship, in the vanity we feel when we have done something pretty good, in the easy conversion of love into lust, in the meanness which makes us deprecate the efforts of other people, in the distortion of our own judgment by our own self-interest, in our fondness for flattery and our resentment of blame, in our self-assertive profession of fine ideals which we never begin to practice. Now again, I may not be a murderer, a burglar, a crook, or a sexual pervert, but is there within me a hardcore of pride Self-centeredness? Is there vanity? Is there meanness? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see it all the time. I mean, I, I'd like to pretend I'm a nice guy, but the reality is I, my life is pretty much all about me all the time because sin has a grip on my life which I can't shake. Let me prove it to you by giving you two examples. One is very trivial, but one is not so much. I have two sons and a daughter, my two boys have gone to or are going to the University of Missouri. One graduated, one's a senior. And over the last six years, my wife and I have made dozens and dozens of trips back and forth to Columbia, going to football games, going to see them, going to take them out to dinner, whatever it might be. We've had a lot of fun doing that. And I've made that drive, and it's not a particularly pretty drive, as those of you who know, so many times, it almost is, is done mechanically. But there's one thing that when I make that drive, I do every single time without fail. And that's this. When I'm driving down the highway and there's an 18-wheeler in the right lane, the slow lane, and I'm approaching them in the left lane to pass them, as I'm overtaking them, if a car comes up in the right lane and, and seeks to pull in, next to me and then in front of me and zoom into my lane and pass this guy in front of me, 100% of the time, I speed up so that sucker can't pass me. I'm not about to let anybody get ahead of me. I mean, I turn, the, I turn, it's not that I drive that fast necessarily, but at that moment, 
I'm at the Indianapolis 500, and nobody's passing me. So what I do is I speed up, I close the gap, the guy gets trapped behind the 18-wheeler, he's stuck there. And I pass the truck, and then I pull over and let him pass me. I'm not a jerk, and I don't make him stay all the way behind me all the way to Columbia. I'm not that big of a jerk. But I'm not going to let him pass me because I'm going to set the rules of the road. I'm going to set his pace for at least a few seconds. Now, you think about that. What's at stake? What if I let that guy pass me? It's not going to mean that I get to Columbia any later. I mean, it might take me, what, two seconds? Sometimes I wouldn't even have to step on the brake to let the guy do this. He's just going so fast, he's going to zoom right in there and be gone. It doesn't make any difference. And you might say, well, so what? I mean, that's not a big deal. That's not really a sin. Well, I don't know. Because you see, I think my pride, my ego, my competitiveness surfaces. I'm not going to let this guy dictate the terms. I'm going to impose my will on him. Now, again, that's not a big deal. But what strikes me is that if, when nothing is at stake, if that's the way I react, then how much more likely am I to draw a line in the sand when things really do matter? Let me give you another example, and this one is much more serious. A few weeks ago, my daughter came home from school and told me that one of her friends was just in love with one of her teachers. This teacher was someone who this girl thought was incredible. She was learning so much. She was having a great experience. She said that this, this teacher was doing such a fantastic job of preparing her for college. Great news, right? I'm the academic dean at Westminster Christian Academy. That means that part of my responsibilities is that I am the one who helps new teachers become assimilated to the school to learn what, what the systems are, how to fit in. And then when people are having, a, having trouble, whether they're new or whether they've been there a long time, I'm the person who meets with them and, tr and helps them to try to become a better teacher. So I'll sit there and encourage them. I will give them suggestions. I will hook them up with other people who can help them. I will give them articles to read or books to read. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll give them materials. That's what I do. That's what I'm paid to do. So when my daughter said, this, this individual really loved this teacher, I should have been happy. But you know what my first thought was? My very first thought was this. I ought to get the credit for that. I ought to get the credit because I spent a lot of time. With this is a teacher of all. This teacher, was new to, this teacher was new to the profession, didn't really know what to do, and I spent hours helping, encouraging, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when the praise came, I wanted it. I wanted the credit. Despite the fact this teacher spent hours and hours and hours working to get better. Weekends, summers, weeknights, vacations. But I was so egotistical, and I am so egotistical, that it was all about me all the time. There's a real problem with that, isn't there? I mean, that's, that's serious. That's when you see that sin is real. So I may be a nice guy. I'd like to pretend I'm a nice guy. But really, at that moment... The reality of who I am came out. And when we, but when, we, when we see ourselves as nice guys, when we think my need isn't that great, when we deny that sin is not about burglary or sexual perversion, yeah, it's those things, but it's just about the day-to-day -day interactions we have with the people. It's about our pride. When we recognize that, then it seems to me that's a starting point to combating spiritual apathy. Because, you see, what sin really is like it's like being in a, living in a house infested with termites. You don't see the termites. You don't really see the damage until the damage becomes devastating, until it's catastrophic. And then there's serious repercussions. And that's the way sin is. When we make peace with it, when we pretend it's not a big deal, and we deny that we're sinners, 
that sin is eating away at us until we react in ways that are selfish, egocentric, and it's all about us. I think it's true. I've not done statistical. I can't. This is not a statistic. This is an opinion. I think that for every, every marriage that breaks up because of adultery, there have to be a dozen that break up simply because of a clash of egos between two strong-willed people who will not bend to the will of the other. Marriages fall apart more because of our sin nature, our pride, I think, than they do for something like adultery. I think G.K. Chesterton said it best when he talks about the impact that sin has upon us. He said this, Countless acts by millions of self-centered instead of God-centered individuals may reasonably be thought to be destroying the world. Millions of acts by self-centered Christians are destroying the world. Well, sign me up. That's me. The problem is, because I think I'm okay, because we think we're okay, we really don't recognize the grip that sin has in our life. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but I'm okay. I mean, really, really. And that's what leads to spiritual apathy. When we don't see the depth of our sin, when we don't see the hold that sin has us, that manifests itself in every occasion and every encounter. If we want to come to grips with spiritual apathy, it seems to me the starting point then is to recognize just how deeply rooted our lives are in our sin nature. Now let's move this forward. I saw an ad, a friend forwarded an ad to me actually about a year ago for leather pants. I was not in the market for leather pants, but I found the ad interesting nonetheless. I'd like to read it to you because I think it says something about this issue. Here it is. You were bidding on a mistake. This was posted on eBay, by the way. You were bidding on a mistake. We all make mistakes. We date the wrong people for too long. We chew gum with our mouths open. We say inappropriate things in front of the wrong people. And we buy leather pants. I can, explain, I can explain these pants and why they're in my possession. I bought them many, many years ago under the spell of a woman whom I believed to have good taste. She, she suggested I try them on. I did. She said they look good. I wanted to have a relationship of sorts with her. I'm stupid and prone to impulsive decisions. I bought the pants. The relationship, probably for better, never materialized. The girl whose name I can't even recall is a distant memory. I think she was short. Ultimately, the pants were placed in the closet where they remained unworn for nearly a decade. I'd like to emphasize that aside from trying these pants on, they've never, ever been worn in public or in private. I have not worn these leather pants for the following reasons. I am not a member of Queen. I do not like motorcycles. I am not Rod Stewart. I am not French. I do not cruise for women or anything else in an expensive sports car. These are not cheap leather pants. They are Donna Karen leather pants. They're for men. Brave men, I would think. Perhaps tattooed pierced men. In fact, I'll go so far as to say you either have to be very tough, very comfortable with your masculinity, or very famous to wear these pants and get away with it. Again, they're men's pants, but they probably look great on the right woman. Ladies can get away with leather pants much more, much more often than men can. It's a sad fact that men who own leather pants will have to come to grips with. They're size 34 by 34. That's my size, by the way. I can get these. Joan, what do you think? They're size 34 by 34. Ooh, this could be a whole new image. School starts tomorrow. This could be, this could be wild. Okay. 
I am no longer size 34 by 34, so even were I to suddenly decide I was a famous rock star, I would not be able to wear those pants. These pants are destined for someone else, for reasons unknown, perhaps to keep my options open in case I wanted to become a pirate. I shuffle these unworn pants from house to house, closet to closet. Alas, it's now time to part ways so that I may use the extra room for any rhinestone-studded jeans I may purchase in the near future. <laughs> these pants are in, ex are in excellent condition. They were never taken on pirate expeditions. They weren't worn on stage. They didn't straddle a Harley or been worn by a guy named Harley. They just hang there, sad and ignored, for a few presidencies. Someone somewhere will look great in these pants. I'm hoping that someone is you or that you can be suckered into buying them by a girl you are trying to impress. Please, buy these leather pants. Now, that's a great ad, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, that's fantastic. But, but, what does it have to do with Christianity? What does it have to do with spiritual apathy? Well, I think it has something real to do with it. You see, this guy bought these pants because he thought when he bought these pants, he was going to be cool. He thought he was going to get the girl. He thought these pants were somehow going to enrich his life and make him more fulfilled. And I would suggest that in, in many ways, each of us has a pair of metaphorical leather pants that we spend our lives chasing. We might think, if I get this job, or if I can get this girl to go out with me, or this guy to ask me out, if, if I get married to this person, if I make this much money, if I buy this car, this house, this, 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 whatever it is, we all have our, we all have our leather pants that we pursue, and we think that will give us satisfaction. This guy found out they didn't bring him satisfaction. They brought him humiliation. And they sat in his closet unused as a source of embarrassment. And I think that many of us know exactly what that means. We've pursued things in our life thinking, this is it. And we've gotten it and said, well, what was that all about? Why did I waste so much time on that? That was foolish. We all have our own version of leather pants. But we always find that those leather pants prove unsatisfactory. And I think that the reason we pursue these leather pants, or at least one of the reasons is, that we, don't, we fail to have any sense of the depth of our condition. We don't really understand, again, how fully sin has grabbed onto our lives. If we had any sense of the reality of our condition, we wouldn't be fooled into thinking that leather pants or a great job or even a great marriage would give us ultimate satisfaction. Believe me, jobs are a blessing. A good job is a blessing. A great marriage is an unbelievable blessing. But they're not ultimately fulfilling because there is a sin in our life that only God can address. I want to, I want to prove that to you, show that to you by reading from Second Corinthians, excuse me, Colossians 2.13. Colossians 2.13 I think really addresses one of the most serious issues in the entire Bible. Because I think it says in very plain terms what the reality of who we are is. I think if we miss the heart of Colossians 2.13, we've missed one of the key ideas in the entire Bible. And I think this is so important. I'm going to ask us to read it in four different translations just so you can see how four different translators put the emphasis in the same place so we can see how, how serious this issue really is. So again, Colossians 2.13. Here's the first one. This comes from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. The second one, this is from the New Living Bible, says, You were dead because of your sins, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ who forgave all our sins. The next is from J.B. Phillips. 
you who were spiritually dead because of your sins and your uncircumcision, God has now made to share in the very life of Christ. And the final one from the NIV, New International Version. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful refrain, or sinful nature, excuse me, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Now, do you see that refrain again and again and again? You were dead. You were dead. You were dead. And God has made us alive. We were dead and God has made us alive. We're dead men. We are dead women apart from Jesus Christ. We are spiritually dead because sin has such a grip on our lives. And if we fail to understand that, then we miss the centerpiece of what Christianity is all about. And what's our reaction to that? What's our reaction to the idea that we have been resurrected from the dead? To a large extent, we shrug our shoulders and say, ah, what's the big deal? Let me live my life the way I want to live it because I can't be bothered. At least that's the way I do it a lot of the time. Now, it's interesting that that's not the way people reacted in the New Testament when Jesus healed somebody and physically brought people back to life. When people had an encounter with Jesus in the New Testament, on three different occasions, he raised somebody from the dead. He did it in Mark 5, he did it in Luke 7, he did it in John 11. He raised Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. He raised the son of the widow from Nain in Luke 7. He raised Lazarus in John 11. And the reaction of the people was strong every single time. Let's look at that. Mark 5, this is what it says upon the first resurrection. This sight sent the others nearly out of their minds with joy. Luke 7 says everybody present was awestruck. And John 11 says after this, many of the Jews who had accompanied Mary and observed what Jesus did believed in him. Now that sounds right, doesn't it? They're, they're nearly went out of their minds with joy. Everybody present was awestruck. They believed. And that's the way we ought to react to resurrection, to new life. And yet, even though spiritual life is far more important than physical life, we shrug our shoulders. We act as if it's no big deal. We take a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately-God attitude toward living the Christian life. At least I do. Now, I know that there are many people in this room who are struggling with some really, really serious issues. I mean, I know there are people who, who, who maybe it's because of ill health, maybe it's because of chronic pain, maybe it's because of relationship struggles or financial pressures. The day-to-day -day circumstances of life are extraordinarily difficult, and I don't want to minimize that. But the reality is that if we are Christians, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, then what really matters, the great blessing in our lives is the fact that he has brought us out of death. He has brought us out of death. We are dead men, dead women walking because of the gift that Jesus Christ has given to us. Now, what a blessing that is. And yet again, because I don't treat my sin all that seriously, I say, well, you know, uh, but it's not, uh, it's God has done that. He has brought life where there was once death. God has provided even when we don't see it. Even when the circumstances of life press us so deeply we fail to see it, he has provided life in the midst of death. Now let's see that at work in the New Testament. I'd like, you, I'd like us to look now, if we can, at um, Luke chapter 5, because I think we see that sort of a, a, a good illustration of this at work. The situation is this. There are four men who have a friend who's paralyzed, and they bring that man to Jesus to be healed. In their mind, in their mind, the issue is, we want him to take care of our friend by allowing him to walk again. But when Jesus meets this man, he doesn't begin there at all. That's not what he says. Let's look at the text again. This is Luke 5, verses 20 to 26. Let's see what Jesus does, because it's very interesting. When Jesus saw their faith, that is the faith of these four men, he said, and, and he said to this, this man on the mat as well, 
Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he, ha- what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Now, a couple of things stand out. Again, the friends of the paralyzed man and the paralyzed man himself think that his real need is to be able to walk, and certainly that is a serious need, and Jesus addressed it. But his real need, and the starting place for Jesus was healing of his spirit, healing of his soul. Friend, your sins are forgiven is where he began, not pick up your mat and walk, because Jesus recognized that though physical healing is fine, the physical healing is important, and the prayers for physical healing are important for us. Concern for the the things of this world is important. What really matters ultimately is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Have we been forgiven for our sins? Do we recognize the depth of our sin? Do we know the toll that sin takes in our lives? Because Lazarus isn't around anymore, is he? Sure, Jesus raised him from the dead 2,000 years ago, but he's long gone. But in a spiritual sense, he's not long gone because as a believer in Jesus Christ, he will live in eternity. Sure, Jesus raised him from the dead to recognize the depth of our sin. Do we know the toll that sin takes in our lives? Because Lazarus isn't around anymore, is he? Sure, Jesus raised him from the dead 2,000 years ago, but he's long gone. But in a spiritual sense, he's not long gone because as a believer in Jesus Christ, he will live in eternity. Are our sins forgiven? Have we brought our sins before Jesus and said, Forgive me for, who, for what I've done and who I am. And it's not just what I've done. It's who I am. That's what we really need to get. It's not just the things we do. It's that pride and ego, that self-centeredness that lies at the core of who we are that really is what sin is all about. It's easy to say that sin is about things we do because we can live disciplined lives and sort of eliminate some of the big ones. But it's those moment-by-moment expressions of the selfishness within us that really reveal to us the depth of our sin. It's easy for us. It's easy for us to lose our passion. It's easy for us to lose our focus. It's easy for us to forget how much God loves us if we fail to recognize our need and the incredible miracle that brought us back to life. Now, I've heard hundreds, maybe even thousands of testimonies, testimonies that is to, but I'll never forget one testimony. We were up there for the weekend. And we went to church at Moody Bible Church in downtown Chicago near um, Lincoln Park. Sunday morning, I don't remember the service. Excuse me, I don't remember the sermon. I don't remember anything about the service except that at one point, a guy got up in the pulpit and he told about his life in Christ. Now, this guy was not articulate. This guy arguably was the least articulate speaker I've ever heard. But I'll never forget his, I'll never, never forget his testimony. You see, the guy was a me- had been a member of the mob. He was a member of the Chicago mob, I guess a, a descendant in some way of Al Capone, um, if not in blood, then in terms of occupation. And this guy had been sent out at a job for the mob by his gangland boss, and he went out to wherever it was, somewhere, actually it was near Moody, and he was out there sitting in a car waiting for, to, for some guy to come along so he could whack him. 
And as he was sitting there in that car, there was somebody nearby who was painting, a painter, not, not an artist, but a painter, like a house painter. And this guy was painting away, and as he was doing so, he was listening to the radio, and he was listening to a Christian station. And this hitman sitting in the car heard this, and he was just overcome, overcome by a sense of sin and a sense of foreboding because of all the things he'd done in his life. And he said, I've got to do something about this. And he got out of the car, and he ran into the nearest church, which happened to be Moody Church. And he went in and found a pastor. And I think about the pastor sitting there in his study, you know, reading the Bible, and all of a sudden, here, here comes... Uh, the hitman. <laughs> What's this about? But the guy says, you've got to help me. You've got to help me. And he, to get to the crux of the story, became a Christian that day. Now, the first thing that the, that the pastor said was, you've got to go to your gangland boss. You've got to go to this mobster and you've got to get out of the mob. Now, you don't do that. I mean, I've seen enough mafia movies to know that's not, what, not how it works. You don't go to the godfather and say, I'm resigning. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go be a carpenter doesn't work that way. But the pastor went with a guy, and they went back to the boss, and, and miracle upon miracles, and it had to be that. The guy said, okay, you get out of here. I never want to see you again. If I ever see you again, I'll kill you. But you get out of here. You're done. And they walked out, and the guy said, man, that was unbelievable. God is good. He said, yeah, but there's one more thing you got to do. He said, what's that? You got to go down to the police station. You got to tell them some of the things you've done. Ooh. Now, I don't know what he told him, and I don't know what he had done because he wasn't specific, but he ended up spending some time in prison. Not a long time, but he did go to jail. And now he was out, and now he stood in the pulpit at Moody, at Moody Church, and he told us about his love for Jesus. And when I say he told us about his love for Jesus, that really isn't what he did. What he did was he screamed about his love for Jesus. The, between tears, this guy screamed, and I'm not going to do to you what he did to us because Moody is a massive church, and this is a pretty small room. But this guy screamed as loud as he could. I'll never forget it. And what he did was he just screamed about, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, as he told his story. And as I sat there, I thought, you know what, this ex-gangster understands more about the love of God than I do. Suburban, nice guy, husband, father, teacher. He gets it. He gets it, not just up here, but he gets it here. Because, you see, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And if we fail to see that, if we fail to, under, if we fail to understand how deeply rooted that sin is in our lives, then we fail to understand the enormity of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We fail to understand that we are dead men, dead women, brought back to life because of his mercy and his grace. You know, we can spend our life chasing leather pants, whatever that is for us, we can think that that's going to give us satisfaction, but the only thing that's going to give us real passion, the only thing that's going to give us real meaning, the only thing that's going to enable us to live a life that truly reflects an understanding of what God has done is to, is to understand the depth of our sin. Now, this is not a happy message. This isn't a feel-good, everybody, you know, kumbaya, let's go home and be happy type message. But, the, but there is incredible happiness in it. There is incredible joy in it. Because what God has done saves us from all that mess of our lives. And we can stand before him as his sons and daughters, as heirs to the kingdom of God because of what he's done. If that's not good news, if that's not happiness and joy, then I'm sadly mistaken. You know, we sing the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And the reason we have a friend is because he knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. And he loves us anyway. And that's great news. Let's close in prayer.